Chapter One of Warren Hastings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford, Middlebury, Vermont, USA. Warren Hastings by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter One. Footnote: Memoirs of the Life of Warren Hastings first governor-general of bengal compiled from original papers by the rev g r gleig m a three volumes octavo london eighteen forty one the edinburgh review october eighteen forty one we are inclined to think that we shall best meet the wishes of our readers if instead of minutely examining this book we attempt to give in a way necessarily hasty and imperfect our own view of the life and character of mr hastings our feeling towards him is not exactly that of the house of commons which impeached him in seventeen eighty seven neither is it that of the house of commons which uncovered and stood up to receive him in eighteen thirteen he had great qualities and he rendered great services to the state but to represent him as a man of stainless virtue was to make him ridiculous and from a regard for his memory if from no other feeling his friends would have done well to lend no countenance to such adulation we believe that if he were now living he would have sufficient judgment and sufficient greatness of mind to wish to be shown as he was he must have known that there were dark spots on his fame he might also have felt with pride that the splendour of his fame would bear many spots he would have wished posterity to have a likeness of him though an unfavourable likeness rather than a daub at once insipid and unnatural resembling neither him nor anybody else paint me as i am said oliver cromwell while sitting to young lely if you leave out the scars and the wrinkles i will not pay you a shilling even in such a trifle the great protector showed both his good sense and his magnanimity he did not wish all that was characteristic in his countenance to be lost in the vain attempt to give him the regular features and smooth blooming cheeks of the curl-pated minions of james i he was content that his face should go forth marked with all the blemishes which had been put on it by time by war by sleepless nights by anxiety perhaps by remorse but with valour policy authority and public care written in all its princely lines if men truly great knew their own interest it is thus that they should wish their minds to be portrayed warren hastings sprang from an ancient and illustrious race it has been affirmed that his pedigree can be traced back to the great danish sea-king whose sails were long the terror of both coasts of the british channel and who after many fierce and doubtful struggles yielded at last to the valour and genius of alfred but the undoubted splendour of the line of hastings needs no illustration from fable one branch of that line wore in the fourteenth century the coronet of pembroke from another branch sprang the renowned chamberlain the faithful adherent of the white rose whose fate has furnished so striking a theme both to poets and to historians his family received from the tudors the earldom of huntingdon which after long dispossession was regained in our time by a series of events scarcely paralleled in romance the lords of the manor of dalesford in worcestershire 
claim to be considered as the heads of this distinguished family. The main stock, indeed, prospered less than some of the younger shoots. But the Dalesford family, though not ennobled, was wealthy and highly considered, till, about two hundred years ago, it was overwhelmed by the great ruin of the Civil War. The Hastings of that time was a zealous cavalier. He raised money on his lands, sent his plate to the mint at Oxford, joined the royal army, and after spending half his property in the cause of King Charles, was glad to ransom himself by making over most of the remaining half to Speaker Lenthal. The old seat at Dalesford still remained in the family, but it could no longer be kept up, and in the following generation it was sold to a merchant of London. Before this transfer took place, the last Hastings of Dalesford had presented his second son to the rectory of the parish in which the ancient residence of the family stood. The living was of little value, and the situation of the poor clergyman after the sale of the estate was deplorable. He was constantly engaged in lawsuits about his tithes with the new lord of the manor, and was at length utterly ruined. The second son, Pinniston, an idle, worthless boy, married before he was sixteen, lost his wife in two years, and died in the West Indies, leaving to the care of his unfortunate father a little orphan, destined to strange and memorable vicissitudes of fortune. Warren, the son of Pinniston, was born on the 6th of December, 1732. His mother died a few days later, and he was left dependent on his distressed grandfather. The child was early sent to the village school, where he learned his letters on the same bench with the sons of the peasantry. Nor did anything in his garb or fare indicate that his life was to take a widely different course from that of the young rustics with whom he studied and played. But no cloud could overcast the dawn of so much genius and so much ambition. The very ploughman observed, and long remembered, how kindly little Warren took to his book. The daily sight of the lands which his ancestors had possessed, and which had passed into the hands of strangers, filled his young brain with wild fancies and projects. He loved to hear stories of the wealth and greatness of his progenitors, of their splendid housekeeping, their loyalty, and their valour. One bright summer day, the boy, then just seven years old, lay on the bank of the rivulet which flows through the old domain of his house to join the Isis. There, as threescore and ten years later he told the tale, rose in his mind a scheme which, through all the turns of his eventful career, was never abandoned. He would recover the estate which had belonged to his father's. He would be Hastings of Dalesford. This purpose, formed in infancy and poverty, grew stronger as his intellect expanded and his fortune rose. He pursued his plan with that calm but indomitable force of will which was the most striking peculiarity of his character. When, under a tropical sun, he ruled fifty millions of Asiatics, his hopes, amidst all the cares of war, finance, and legislation, still pointed to Dalesford. And when his long public life, so singularly checkered with good and evil, with glory and obloquy, had at length closed for ever, it was to Dalesford that he retired to die. When he was eight years old, his uncle Howard determined to take charge of him and to give him a liberal education. 
the boy went up to london and was sent to a school at newnington where he was well taught but ill fed he always attributed the smallness of his stature to the hard and scanty fare of this seminary at ten he was removed to westminster school then flourishing under the care of dr nichols vinnie bourne as his pupils affectionately called him was one of the masters churchill coleman lloyd cumberland cowper were among the students with cowper hastings formed a friendship which neither the lapse of time nor a wide dissimilarity of opinions and pursuits could wholly dissolve it does not appear that they ever met after they had grown to manhood but forty years later when the voices of many great orators were crying for vengeance on the oppressor of india the shy and secluded poet could image himself to hastings the governor-general only as the hastings with whom he had rowed on the thames and played in the cloister and refused to believe that so good-tempered a fellow could have done anything very wrong his own life had been spent in praying musing and rhyming among the water-lilies of the ooze he had preserved in no common measure the innocence of childhood his spirit had indeed been severely tried but not by temptations which impelled him to any gross violation of the rules of social morality he had never been attacked by combinations of powerful and deadly enemies he had never been compelled to make a choice between innocence and greatness between crime and ruin firmly as he held in theory the doctrine of human depravity his habits were such that he was unable to conceive how far from the path of right even kind and noble natures may be hurried by the rage of conflict and the lust of dominion hastings had another associate at westminster of whom we shall have occasion to make frequent mention elijah impey we know little about their school days but we think we may safely venture to guess that whenever hastings wished to play any trick more than usually naughty he hired impey with a tart or a ball to act as fag in the worst part of the prank warren was distinguished among his comrades as an excellent swimmer boatman and scholar at fourteen he was first in the examination for the foundation his name in gilded letters on the walls of the dormitory still attests his victory over many older competitors he stayed two years longer at the school and was looking forward to a studentship at christchurch when an event happened which changed the whole course of his life howard hastings died bequeathing his nephew to the care of a friend and distant relation named chiswick this gentleman though he did not absolutely refuse the charge was desirous to rid himself of it as soon as possible dr nichols made strong remonstrances against the cruelty of interrupting the studies of a youth who seemed likely to be one of the first scholars of the age he even offered to bear the expense of sending his favourite pupil to oxford but mr chiswick was inflexible he thought the years which had already been wasted on hexameters and pentameters quite sufficient he had it in his power to obtain for the lad a writership in the service of the east india company whether the young adventurer when once shipped off made a fortune or died of a liver complaint he equally ceased to be a burden to anybody warren was accordingly removed from westminster school and placed for a few months at a commercial academy to study arithmetic and bookkeeping in january seventeen fifty 
A few days after he had completed his seventeenth year, he sailed for Bengal and arrived at his destination in the October following. He was immediately placed at a desk in the secretary's office at Calcutta and laboured there during two years. Fort William was then a purely commercial settlement. In the south of India, the encroaching policy of Duplay had transformed the servants of the East India Company, against their will, into diplomatists and generals. The war of the succession was raging in the Carnatic, and the tide had been suddenly turned against the French by the genius of young Robert Clive. But in Bengal, the European settlers, at peace with the natives and with each other, were wholly occupied with ledgers and bills of lading. After two years passed in keeping accounts at Calcutta, Hastings was sent up the country to Kasimbazar, a town which lies on the Hooghly, about a mile from Morshedabad, and which then bore to Morshedabad a relation, if we may compare small things with great, such as the city of London bears to Westminster. Morshedabad was the abode of the prince, who, by an authority ostensibly derived from the Mogul, but really independent, ruled the three great provinces of Bengal, Orissa, and Bihar. At Morshedabad were the court, the haram, and the public offices. Kusimbazar was a port and a place of trade, renowned for the quantity and excellence of the silks which were sold in its marts, and constantly receiving and sending forth fleets of richly laden barges. At this important point, the company had established a small factory subordinate to that of Fort William. Here, during several years, Hastings was employed in making bargains for stuffs with native brokers. When he was thus engaged, Suraja Dowla succeeded to the government and declared war against the English. The defenceless settlement of Kosimbazar, lying close to the tyrant's capital, was instantly seized. Hastings was sent a prisoner to Morshedabad, but in consequence of the humane intervention of the servants of the Dutch company, was treated with indulgence. Meanwhile the nabob marched on Calcutta, the governor and the commandant fled, the town and the citadel were taken, and most of the English prisoners perished in the black hole. In these events originated the greatness of Warren Hastings. The fugitive government and his companions had taken refuge on the dreary island of Fulda, near the mouth of the Hooghly. They were naturally desirous to obtain full information respecting the proceedings of the nabob, and no person seemed so likely to furnish it as Hastings, who was a prisoner at large in the immediate neighbourhood of the court. He thus became a diplomatic agent, and soon established a high character for ability and resolution. The treason which at a later period was fatal to Suraja Daula was already in progress, and Hastings was admitted to the deliberations of the conspirators. But the time for striking had not arrived. It was necessary to postpone the execution of the design, and Hastings, who was now in extreme peril, fled to Fulda. Soon after his arrival at Fulda, the expedition from Madras, commanded by Clive, appeared in the Hooghly. Warren, young, intrepid, and excited probably by the example of the commander of the forces, who, having like himself been a mercantile agent of the company, had been turned by public calamities into a soldier, determined to serve in the ranks. During the early operations of the war he carried a musket, 
but the quick eye of clive soon perceived that the head of the young volunteer would be more useful than his arm when after the battle of plassey mir jaffier was proclaimed nabob of bengal hastings was appointed to reside at the court of the new prince as agent for the company he remained at Morshidaba until the year 1761, when he became a member of the council and was consequently forced to reside at Calcutta. This was during the interval between Clive's first and second administration, an interval which has left on the fame of the East India Company a stain, not wholly effaced by many years of just and humane government. Mr. Van Sittart, the governor, was at the head of a new and anomalous empire. On the one side was a band of English functionaries, daring, intelligent, eager to be rich. On the other side was a great native population, helpless, timid, accustomed to crouch under oppression. To keep the stronger race from preying on the weaker was an undertaking which tasked to the utmost the talents and energy of Clive. Vansittart, with fair intentions, was a feeble and inefficient ruler. The master caste, as was natural, broke loose from all restraint, and then was seen what we believe to be the most frightful of all spectacles, the strength of civilization without its mercy. To all other despotism there is a check, imperfect indeed, and liable to gross abuse, but still sufficient to preserve society from the last extreme of misery. A time comes when the evils of submission are obviously greater than those of resistance, when fear itself begets a sort of courage, when a convulsive burst of popular rage and despair warns tyrants not to presume too far on the patience of mankind. But against misgovernment, such as then afflicted Bengal, it was impossible to struggle. The superior intelligence and energy of the dominant class made their power irresistible, a war of Bengalese against Englishmen was like a war of sheep against wolves, of men against demons. The only protection which the conquered could find was in the moderation, the clemency, the enlarged policy of the conquerors. That protection at a later period they found, but at first English power came among them unaccompanied by English morality. There was an interval between the time at which they became our subjects and the time at which we began to reflect that we were bound to discharge towards them the duties of rulers. During that interval the business of a servant of the company was simply to wring out of the natives a hundred or two hundred thousand pounds as speedily as possible that he might return home before his constitution had suffered from the heat to marry a peer's daughter, to buy rotten boroughs in Cornwall, and to give balls in St. James Square. Of the conduct of Hastings at this time little is known, but the little that is known, and the circumstance that little is known, must be considered as honourable to him. He could not protect the natives. All that he could do was to abstain from plundering and oppressing them, and this he appears to have done. It is certain that at this time he continued poor, and it is equally certain that by cruelty and dishonesty he might easily have become rich. It is certain that he was never charged with having borne a share in the worst abuses which then prevailed, and it is almost equally certain that if he had borne a share in those abuses, the able and bitter enemies who afterwards persecuted him would not have failed to discover and to proclaim his guilt. 
the keen severe and even malevolent scrutiny to which his whole public life was subjected a scrutiny unparalleled as we believe in the history of mankind is in one respect advantageous to his reputation it brought many lamentable blemishes to light but it entitles him to be considered pure from every blemish which has not been brought to light the truth is that the temptations to which so many english functionaries yielded in the time of mr vansittart were not temptations addressed to the ruling passions of warren hastings he was not squeamish in pecuniary transactions but he was neither sordid nor rapacious he was far too enlightened a man to look on a great empire merely as a buccaneer would look on a galleon had his heart been much worse than it was his understanding would have preserved him from that extremity of baseness he was an unscrupulous perhaps an unprincipled statesman but still he was a statesman and not a freebooter in seventeen sixty four hastings returned to england he had realized only a very moderate fortune and that moderate fortune was soon reduced to nothing partly by his praiseworthy liberality and partly by his mismanagement towards his relations he appears to have acted very generously the greater part of his savings he left in bengal hoping probably to obtain the highest usury of india but high usury and bad security generally go together and hastings lost both interest and principal he remained four years in england of his life at this time very little is known but it has been asserted and is highly probable that liberal studies and the society of men of letters occupied a great part of his time it is to be remembered to his honour that in the days when the languages of the east were regarded by other servants of the company merely as the means of communicating with weavers and money-changers his enlarged and accomplished mind sought in asiatic learning for new forms of intellectual enjoyment and for new views of government and society perhaps like most persons who have paid much attention to departments of knowledge which lie out of the common track he was inclined to overrate the value of his favourite studies he conceived that the cultivation of persian literature might with advantage be made a part of the liberal education of an english gentleman and he drew up a plan with that view it is said that the university of oxford in which oriental learning has never since the revival of letters been wholly neglected was to be the seat of the institution which he contemplated an endowment was expected from the munificence of the company and professors thoroughly competent to interpret hafiz and ferdusi were to be engaged in the east hastings called on johnson with the hope as it should seem of interesting in this project a man who enjoyed the highest literary reputation and who was particularly connected with oxford the interviews appears to have left on johnson's mind a most favourable impression of the talents and attainments of his visitor long after when hastings was ruling the immense population of british india the old philosopher wrote to him and referred in the most courtly terms though with great dignity to their short but agreeable intercourse hastings soon began to look again towards india he had little to attach him to england and his pecuniary embarrassments were great he solicited his old masters the directors for employment they acceded to his request with high compliments both to his abilities and to his integrity and appointed him a member of council at madras 
it would be unjust not to mention that though forced to borrow money for his outfit he did not withdraw any portion of the sum which he had appropriated to the relief of his distressed relations in the spring of seventeen sixty nine he embarked on board of the duke of grafton and commenced a voyage distinguished by incidents which might furnish matter for a novel among the passengers in the duke of grafton was a german of the name of imhoff he called himself a baron but he was in distressed circumstances and was going out to madras as a portrait painter in the hope of picking up some of the pagodas which were then lightly got and as lightly spent by the english in india the baron was accompanied by his wife a native we have somewhere read of archangel this young woman who born under the arctic circle was destined to play the part of a queen under the tropic of cancer had an agreeable person a cultivated mind and manners in the highest degree engaging she despised her husband heartily and as the story which we have to tell sufficiently proves not without reason she was interested by the conversation and flattered by the attentions of hastings the situation was indeed perilous no place is so propitious to the formation either of close friendships or of deadly enmities as an indiaman there are very few people who do not find a voyage which lasts several months insupportably dull anything is welcome which may break that long monotony a sail a shark an albatross a man overboard most passengers find some resource in eating twice as many meals as on land but the great devices for killing the time are quarrelling and flirting the facilities for both these exciting pursuits are great the inmates of the ship are thrown together far more than in any country seat or boarding-house none can escape from the rest except by imprisoning himself in a cell in which he can hardly turn all food all exercise is taken in company ceremony is to a great extent banished it is every day in the power of a mischievous person to inflict innumerable annoyances it is every day in the power of an amiable person to confer little services it not seldom happens that serious distress and danger call forth in genuine beauty and deformity heroic virtues and abject vices which in the ordinary intercourse of good society might remain during many years unknown even to intimate associates under such circumstances met warren hastings and the baroness imhoff two persons whose accomplishments would have attracted notice in any court of europe the gentleman had no domestic ties the lady was tied to a husband for whom she had no regard and who had no regard for his own honour an attachment sprang up which was soon strengthened by events such as could hardly have occurred on land hastings fell ill the baroness nursed him with womanly tenderness gave him his medicines with her own hand and even sat up in his cabin while he slept long before the duke of grafton reached madras hastings was in love but his love was of a most characteristic description like his hatred like his ambition like all his passions it was strong but not impetuous it was calm deep earnest patient of delay unconquerable by time imhoff was called into council by his wife and his wife's lover it was arranged that the baroness should institute a suit for divorce in the courts of franconia 
that the baron should afford every facility to the proceeding and that during the years which might elapse before the sentence should be pronounced they should continue to live together it was also agreed that Hastings should bestow some very substantial marks of gratitude on the complacent husband, and should, when the marriage was dissolved, make the lady his wife, and adopt the children whom she had already borne to Imhoff. At Madras Hastings found the trade of the company in a very disorganized state. His own tastes would have led him rather to political than to commercial pursuits but he knew that the favour of his employers depended chiefly on their dividends, and that their dividends depended chiefly on the investment. He therefore, with great judgment, determined to apply his vigorous mind for a time to this department of business, which had been much neglected, since the servants of the company had ceased to be clerks, and had become warriors and negotiators. In a few months he effected an important reform, the directors notified to him their high approbation and were so much pleased with his conduct that they determined to place him at the head of the government of bengal early in seventeen seventy two he quitted fort st george for his new post the imhoffs who were still man and wife accompanied him and lived at calcutta on the same plan which they had already followed during more than two years when hastings took his seat at the head of the council board Bengal was still governed according to the system which Clive had devised, a system which was, perhaps, skilfully contrived for the purpose of facilitating and concealing a great revolution, but which, when that revolution was complete and irrevocable, could produce nothing but inconvenience. There were two governments, the real and the ostensible. The supreme power belonged to the company, and was in truth the most despotic power that can be conceived. The only restraint on the English masters of the country was that which their own justice and humanity imposed on them. There was no constitutional check on their will, and resistance to them was utterly hopeless. But though thus absolute in reality, the English had not yet assumed the style of sovereignty. They held their territories as vassals of the throne of Delhi, they raised their revenues as collectors appointed by the Imperial Commission, their public seal was inscribed with the imperial titles, and their mint struck only the imperial coin. There was still a nabob of Bengal, who stood to the English rulers of his country in the same relation in which Augustulus stood to Odoacer, or the last Merovingians to Charles Martel and Pepin. He lived at Morshedabad, surrounded by princely magnificence. He was approached with outward marks of reverence, and his name was used in public instruments, but in the government of the country he had less real share than the youngest writer or cadet in the company's service. The English council, which represented the company at Calcutta, was constituted on a very different plan from that which has since been adopted. At present the governor is, to all executive measures, absolute. He can declare war, conclude peace, appoint public functionaries or remove them, in opposition to the unanimous sense of those who sit with him in council. They are indeed entitled to know all that is done, to discuss all that is done, to advise, to remonstrate, to send protests to England. But it is with the governor that the supreme power resides, and on him that the whole responsibility rests. This system, which was introduced by Mr. Pitt, 
and Mr. Dundas, in spite of the strenuous opposition of Mr. Burke, we conceive to be, on the whole, the best that was ever devised for the government of a country where no materials can be found for a representative constitution. In the time of Hastings, the governor had only one vote in council, and, in case of an equal division, a casting vote. It therefore happened not infrequently that he was overruled on the gravest questions, and it was possible that he might be wholly excluded for years together from the real direction of public affairs. The English functionaries at Fort William had as yet paid little or no attention to the internal government of Bengal. The only branch of politics about which they much busied themselves was negotiation with the native princes. The police, the administration of justice, the details of the collection of revenue were almost entirely neglected. We may remark that the phraseology of the company's servants still bears the traces of this state of things. To this day they always use the word political as synonymous with diplomatic. We could name that gentleman still living who was described by the highest authority as an invaluable public servant eminently fit to be at the head of the internal administration of a whole presidency, but unfortunately quite ignorant of all political business. The internal government of Bengal, the English rulers delegated, to a great native minister, who was stationed at Morshidabad. All military affairs, with the exception of what pertains to mere ceremonial, all foreign affairs, were withdrawn from his control, but the other departments of the administration were entirely confided to him. His own stipend amounted to near a hundred thousand pounds sterling a year. The personal allowance of the nabob, amounting to more than three hundred thousand pounds a year, passed through the minister's hands and was, to a great extent, at his disposal. The collection of the revenue, the administration of justice, the maintenance of order were left to this high functionary, and for the exercise of his immense power he was responsible to none but the British masters of the country. A situation so important, lucrative, and splendid, was naturally an object of ambition to the ablest and most powerful natives. Clive had found it difficult to decide between conflicting pretensions. Two candidates stood out prominently from the crowd, each of them the representative of a race and of a religion. One of these was Mohammed Reza Khan, a Mussulman of Persian extraction, able, active, religious after the fashion of his people, and highly esteemed by them. In England he might perhaps have been regarded as a corrupt and greedy politician, but, tried by the lower standard of Indian morality, he might be considered a man of integrity and honour. His competitor was a Hindu Brahmin, whose name has, by a terrible and melancholy event, been inseparably associated with that of Warren Hastings, the Maharaja Nunkomar. This man had played an important part in all the revolutions which, since the time of Suraja Daula, had taken place in Bengal. To the consideration which in that country belongs to high and pure caste, he added the weight which is derived from wealth, talents, and experience. Of his moral character, it is difficult to give a notion to those who are acquainted with human nature only as it appears in our island. What the Italian is to the Englishman, what the Hindu is to the Italian, what the Bengali is to other Hindus, 
that was Nuncomar to other Bengalis. The physical organization of the Bengali is feeble even to effeminacy. He lives in a constant vapor bath. His pursuits are sedentary, his limbs delicate, his movements languid. During many ages he has been trampled upon by men of bolder and more hardy breeds. Courage, independence, veracity are qualities to which his constitution and his situation are equally unfavorable. His mind bears a singular analogy to his body. It is weak even to helplessness for purposes of manly resistance, but its suppleness and its tact move the children of sterner climates to admiration not unmingled with contempt. All those arts which are the natural defense of the weak are more familiar to this subtle race than to the Ionian of the time of Juvenal, or to the Jew of the Dark Ages. What the horns are to the buffalo, what the paw is to the tiger, what the sting is to the bee, what beauty, according to the old Greek song, is to woman, deceit is to the Bengali. Large promises, smooth excuses, elaborate tissues of circumstantial falsehood, chicanery, perjury, forgery, are the weapons, offensive and defensive, of the people of the lower Ganges. All those millions do not furnish one sepoy to the armies of the company. But as usurers, as money-changers, as sharp legal practitioners, no class of human beings can bear a comparison with them. With all his softness, the Bengali is by no means placable in his enmities or prone to pity, the pertinacity with which he adheres to his purpose yields only to the immediate pressure of fear, nor does he lack a certain kind of courage which is often wanting in his masters. To inevitable evils he is sometimes found to oppose a passive fortitude such as the Stoics attributed to their ideal sage. A European warrior who rushes on a battery of cannon with a loud hurrah will sometimes shriek under the surgeon's knife and fall into an agony of despair at the sentence of death. But the Bengali, who would see his country overrun, his house laid in ashes, his children murdered or dishonored, without having the spirit to strike one blow, has yet been known to endure torture with the firmness of Mucius, and to mount the scaffold with the steady step and even pulse of Algernon Sidney. End of chapter 1